And so after two weeks away from our series in Hebrews, it's all about Jesus. We're returning to this important book of the Bible today, and we're going to come to Hebrews chapter 7. If you have your Bible and want to go ahead and turn there, you're welcome to do that. Uh, where we're finally going to learn about Melchizedek, who was referenced back in chapter 5, but then the author digressed to cover some ground that had to be covered before he could write about Melchizedek. And I want to remind you, as I have frequently in this series, uh, and remind you as we re-engage today, that central to its message, central to the message of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better, Jesus is greater than the law, he is greater than everything that came before him. The author has made that argument in many ways throughout this uh, book of the Bible, and now here in chapter 7, he's going to make that argument yet another way by referring to a rather obscure figure in Israel's history, uh, this priest by the name of Melchizedek. We're going to cover the entire seventh chapter today, uh, but we're going to break it down into four sections. We'll read together each section separately. I'll share a few comments on each section, and then we'll go to the next one. We left off three weeks ago at the end of chapter 6, where we were told that Jesus is an anchor for our souls. We learned that he is anchored in the very presence of God forever. We learned that he is our forerunner into the presence of God, that he has gone there before us, but we will eventually follow him. And then in the last line of chapter 6, here's what we read. He, Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now chapter 7 is going to tell us about this Melchizedek and about his significance for those who were facing temptation to turn away from Christ and back to their former way of life. So let's uh, look now at Hebrews 7. Our first section is going to be verses 1 through 3, and let's read this together. Here we go. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Interesting few verses, aren't they? Melchizedek is only mentioned three times in the Bible. Uh, he's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, where we can read of the encounter that was referenced there in Hebrews 7. It isn't until a thousand years later that he is mentioned again in a single verse of the 110th Psalm, which mentions him and references someone who is unidentified as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then it's another thousand years that passes until the author of Hebrews unpacks the importance of Melchizedek and identifies the one who is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is Jesus Christ. 
While he's only mentioned three times, he was and is a very important figure as this chapter of Hebrews tells us. And I just want you to note a few things from verses 1 through 3 and what they tell us about Melchizedek. He was king of Salem. He was priest of God Most High. So he was both a king and a priest. He was king of Salem, which would later become the holy city of God's chosen people, Jerusalem. Melchizedek was king and priest there in that place before it became the capital city of God's chosen people. As the text tells us, his name means king of righteousness, and his title, king of Salem, carries the meaning king of peace. So again, get all of this. He's a priest and king. He is king and priest of the place that would become the capital of God's chosen people before it's the capital of God's chosen people. His name means king of righteousness. His title means king of peace. And then we read this interesting bit of information. He was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. That's really interesting. And it's understandable that some read this description of Melchizedek and they, what they believe they see, who they believe Melchizedek might be, is an Old Testament incarnation of the Son of God. But most Bible scholars say that the description we just read should be understood to apply only as it relates to Melchizedek's priesthood. And I hope to explain that a little bit. With the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, ancestry was the determining factor. The tribe that you came from was all important. The tribe of Levi, the Levites, they were the priest. But Melchizedek predated the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. And in fact, he was not even connected to God's chosen people. He, he, he was outside of God's chosen people. So his priesthood was entirely other than anything the readers of Hebrews had experienced in their old way of life before coming to faith in Jesus. Their priesthood was based on ancestry, but Melchizedek's priesthood was not based on family. It wasn't based on genealogy. It wasn't based on ancestry. The circumstances of his birth are not known. We're never told about them. The circumstances of his death are not known. We're never told about that. He just appears in Genesis 14. He's just there with no explanation. And so most Bible scholars believe that it is in that way, as it relates to his priesthood, that the author of Hebrews says he is without father and mother, without genealogy. is basically a way of saying his priesthood isn't based on any of that. And we're going to see the significance of that to Jesus later on. But for now, understand that at least most Bible scholars believe Melchizedek was a mortal man, but a man without a known genealogy to form the basis of his priesthood. And then the author says in verse 3 that Melchizedek, resembling the Son of God, remains a priest forever. And of course, when we hear the description of Melchizedek, we understand why the author says resembling the Son of God. 
And by saying he remains a priest forever, the author is saying that the later development of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood did not undo the eternal nature of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so this is who Melchizedek is. And verses 1 and 2 then tell us of Abraham and Melchizedek's interaction with each other. Abraham was returning home from a, a military victory. He and Melchizedek met each other. And very significant, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And our next section of Hebrews 7, verses 4 through 11, explain the significance of this interaction. And here's what we find. Just think, all of us, <laughs> just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. This section begins with the author drawing attention to what a great man Melchizedek was, and here's how he knows he was a great man. Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham was one of the most revered names in the history of the Hebrew people. He was a great man, and his paying tithes to Melchizedek indicates that Melchizedek was an even greater man. Remember that Abraham was the father of faith. He was the one of whom the apostle Paul wrote that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a righteous man and his paying ties to Melchizedek suggests that Melchizedek was an even more righteous man. And then note that the author says, it could even be said. It's another way of saying in a sense, Levi, the father of the tribe of Levi, who became the priest of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, paid tithes to Melchizedek, even though he wasn't born yet, because he was still within Abraham's body when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So in a sense, Levi, the head of the family of priests, paid tithes to Melchizedek. This lets us know that Melchizedek predated the Levitical priesthood, and it lets us know that Melchizedek was greater than the Levitical priesthood. Not only did Abraham pay tithes to Melchizedek, but our text tells us that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And we're told very clearly the significance of this in verse 7. It says, without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Greater Melchizedek blessed Abraham. 
and by extension, Levi, who was still within Abraham's body. It'll be made clear in the next section, but we've already discovered enough to know that the Levitical priesthood was based on ancestry. Only those from the tribe of Levi could be the priest. But Melchizedek's priesthood was not based on ancestry. It was based on righteousness. He was a righteous man, and that was the basis of his selection by God as a king and a priest. So Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. What what did we learn at the end of chapter 6? Christ is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This means that Christ continues the priesthood of Melchizedek, and this means that Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood, and we see that not only is it superior, but Christ replaces the Levitical priesthood. Verses 11 through 19. Let's read together again. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. This, amen, amen. This lets us know that what is needed is perfection. But the law, the Levitical priesthood, these things were weak and useless because they could not make anything perfect. But Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek. He was priest and king. He is totally righteous. He is the king of peace. He is without beginning of days. He is without end of life. Literally, those things are true of Jesus, not just in the typological way that they were true of Melchizedek. And pay special attention to this. Like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood was not based on ancestry because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. Judah was the tribe of kings. Levi was the tribe of priests. The author tells us that no one from Christ's tribe has ever served at the altar. And the significance of that is that Jesus' priesthood is not based on ancestry, but it is based on his righteous life. The way the author describes it is that Jesus' priesthood is based on his indestructible life. 
Christ's life is indestructible because Christ is perfectly righteous. The Levitical priests and the law were weak and useless because, well, because they were weak and useless. They, they, they weren't righteous. They made nothing perfect. In contrast to that, the author of Hebrews says of Jesus, a better hope, a better hope has been introduced. Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. It replaces it. And where the Levitical priesthood was temporary, Christ's priesthood is forever. Let's look at our final section, verses 20 through 28, and read them together. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. Amen. These verses articulate in beautiful fashion that it really is all about Jesus, that Jesus really is greater. He really is superior to everything. Notice how Jesus is contrasted with the law and the Levitical priesthood throughout uh, this last section of Hebrews 7. And all of these things demonstrate his superiority, superiority. So it notes for us that Levitical priests lived and died and their priesthood was over. In fact, in the history of the Levitical priesthood, I believe there were 84 high priests. They all lived, they all died, their priesthood was over. But Jesus lives forever and is high priest forever. His priesthood will never end. Levitical priests became priests based on ancestry. They had no oath from God establishing their priesthood. God never said of the Levitical priest, you are priest forever. But in Psalm 110 and verse 4, he did say it of Jesus. God's oath is this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Jesus, you are a priest forever forever. The, the Levitical priesthood was for a time. Then it changed and it was done away with. But Jesus is priest forever. God has sworn that it is so. God will not change his mind. The Levitical priest had to continually offer sacrifices. First for themselves because they were sinful. And then for the people. But Christ didn't need to sacrifice for his own sins because he didn't have any. 
And so based on his perfect righteousness, he was able to sacrifice himself for the sins of the people once for all. The law provided imperfect priests and imperfect sacrifices that could never bring about the perfection that God required. So a better high priest was appointed by God with an oath. Jesus, God's one and only son, is the perfect high priest and is the perfect sacrifice. He continues the priesthood of Melchizedek, which predated the law and extends beyond the law. He is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, but he is greater than Melchizedek because Melchizedek was simply the type that pointed to the coming of God's great high priest, Jesus Christ. So what's all of this mean for us? I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, this feels like heavy lifting today. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of things that are kind of challenging to understand. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, it means some really good things for us. It really does. Let me share just a few of the things that we can take from this text and apply to our lives. First, it means, as verse 18 tells us, that we can draw near to God and we can do so with confidence. I want to remind you about a few things about the presence of God. Realize that when the law was given on Mount Sinai, the people were forbidden from even touching the mountain, except for very specific circumstances. There were very specific things that had to be done for them to be able to ascend the mountain. Otherwise, if they touched the mountain, they died. Remember when David's men mishandled the Ark of the Covenant, they carried the presence of God. What happened? They died because they touched the holy place that they were forbidden from touching because they were sinful men. In the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies was hidden in the inner court and it was hidden behind a heavy curtain. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and then only once a year and then only with great care to abide by all the rules and the rituals of entering the holy place and failure to abide by those things resulted in the death of the high priest. We're told that they would put a rope around the ankle of the high priest and he would wear little bells on the bottom of his robe so that if the bells stopped, what do bells do? Tinkling. If the bell stopped, they could pull him out because they knew that something had gone wrong, some observance had not been met, some ritual had not been satisfied, and the high priest would die. The law and the priest were never able to make right what sin had ruined. They were never able to restore mankind to a place where they could enter the presence of God. We were separated from God. But Jesus' perfect righteousness accomplished what the law could not. And so where under the law, sins could only be rolled back for a year, now Jesus has offered himself the perfect sacrifice once for all, providing us a better hope 
And so what this means is, because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, we don't have to worry that touching the mountain is going to result in death. We don't have to worry that, that uh, entering the Holy of Holies is going to result in death. We don't have to worry that, that if we come near to God, like, we're not, we're not going to survive. We can draw near to God with confidence. Those under the old covenant could not do that. It was a fearful thing to approach holy God. But because of Jesus, because of what we have seen here in Hebrews 7, we are able to draw near to God with confidence. There are no hoops that you have to jump through. There's no red tape to work around. There's no ritual to observe. Because of Jesus, we can simply turn away from sin and turn confidently toward God and he will receive us. He won't harm us. He'll receive us, love us, welcome us because of Jesus. What this all means is that as verse 25 tells us, Jesus saves completely, or it can also be understood as Jesus saves forever those who come to God through him. There's no more rolling sins back for a year, being in the clear for a year, and then needing to sacrifice all over again. No, when Jesus saves, he saves completely. He saves forever. What a wonderful thing to realize that you're not on a short-term contract with God. You don't have to renegotiate every year. No, Jesus paid our debt once for all. Through him, I am and you are saved completely. No further sacrifices needed. None. As I titled the sermon, Jesus lives forever and saves forever. Those who come to God through him, because verse 25 also tells us that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. He is eternally in the presence of God on my behalf and your behalf if we have come to faith in him. Because of all of this, all that we have seen in chapter 7, we can be confident in Jesus. Again, remember, it's written to people who were losing their confidence in Jesus. They were thinking of turning back to their old way of life. We can be confident in Jesus. He's perfect. He lives forever. He satisfied the debt of sin once for all. He saves completely those who come to him. He lives forever and saves forever, interceding for us. We can draw near to him. God has sworn an oath that Jesus is priest forever. He's not going anywhere. He'll never die. He'll never step down. He'll never be replaced by someone else. Jesus is high priest forever. And so you can be confident in him, confident enough to entrust your entire life to Jesus. And as we've seen over and over again in this series, this means that Jesus is greater than the law, greater than everything came that came before him that pointed toward him. The people that the author wrote to were at risk 
of rejecting Jesus who was perfect for the law, which the author describes as weak and useless. So the author is appealing again to them, as he has done throughout the entire book and will continue to do. Hold on to Jesus. He's so much better than what you're tempted to return to. But that's not our temptation, is it? We're not looking to return to the Levitical priesthood. We're not looking to live under the law. So how, how do we apply this to our lives? The author of Hebrews has made it clear that the law couldn't bring about perfection. It couldn't bring about righteousness and peace with God. It couldn't bring about the kind of relationship with God that we were created for and that only when we have it are we fulfilled. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I mean, if you really get down to the bottom of what everybody is searching for in the entire world, what people want is peace, they want rest, they want shalom, they want the sense that all is well with me. All is well with mine. That's what people desire. That's what people want. Those who first read this letter were tempted to turn back to the law to try to find that. And the author of Hebrews said that if they did, they'd be turning back to something that was weak. They'd be turning back to something that was temporary. They would be turning back to something that could not get the job done couldn't deliver what they desired. They'd be turning back to something that was useless for the purpose they were trying to use it for. And friends, those are apt descriptors of literally everything that tempts us away from Jesus. Everything that tempts you away from Jesus, everything that tempts me away from Jesus is temporary, it is weak, and it is useless. Think of all the things that we turn to instead of Jesus to try to find peace and rest, to try to find a sense that all is well with us. Some turn to money, some turn to accomplishments, career advancement. Some turn to experiences, adventure. Some put all the responsibility on a relationship, a marriage, a friend. Some not finding what they desire turn to illicit means to try to secure a sense of well-being. Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's sex. Those are two places that humans tend to turn a lot. Whatever it is that tempts you away from Jesus... And for some of us here today, it may be something that's already tempted you away. You've already turned away. And for others of us, it's that we're facing a temptation. We haven't turned away yet, but we're being tempted to. Whatever it is, here's something the author of Hebrews, I believe, would want you to know. Just like the law was weak and temporary and couldn't deliver what people needed, Everything you turn to besides Jesus is too weak to deliver what you need. 
even if you find something that you think, well, that, that seems pretty good. That seems like that's helping. Even if you find something like that, it's only short term. It's temporary. It's not going to last. Haven't we seen that, all of us, with sin in our life? Yeah, I mean, I mean, nobody's denying that sin can be fun. No, I don't think anybody's ever denied that. It's temporary, though. It doesn't last. It doesn't sustain. And that's why often when people get involved in sin as a way to, to try to find what their soul needs, they, they go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into sin because it never satisfies. And so, so they go further. Okay, maybe that'll satisfy it never satisfies. It's a bottomless pit. The things we turn to are weak. The things we turn to are temporary. Everything we turn to other than Jesus it simply cannot get the job done. It's useless. And so the appeal of the author of Hebrews to his first readers is the same appeal that all of us need today. Don't trade Jesus, the perfect, righteous, indestructible high priest and king of peace for things that are weak, things that are temporary, and things that cannot provide what you need. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable to do that. And we all do unthinkable things all the time. But it's unthinkable that we would turn from Jesus to any of those things. And so again, the author appeals to them and to us. Reject the temptations and hold on to Jesus. Are you committed to hold on to Jesus? Are you committed to hold on to Jesus? Let's stand.